Time for Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Lots to talk about today, this week, including additional funding for legal aid. What are we seeing? Yes. So this is, of course, uh, good news. Uh, we've spoken uh, before about some of the profound uh, problems uh, in BC with legal aid uh, funding being inadequate. Yes. Uh, the, the core of which is a result of the government diverting um, something north of $100 million a year of money collected pursuant to a special tax that was supposed to pay for legal aid in British Columbia. It's a provincial sales tax you pay anytime you hire a, a lawyer to do anything, um, unlike uh, any other professional service, and the government diverts more than half of that uh, money to other purposes rather than funding legal aid, which has caused for many years just profound problems. And so it's important to keep that figure and that background in mind. But with that being said, uh, there was recently announced uh, approximately $8 million in total additional funding for legal aid. It's only a small portion of what's being diverted, but every little bit helps. Um, and the uh, funding uh, is going to uh, allow some uh, services uh, and uh, things which haven't previously existed that I think it's important for people to know about. Um, one of the things which has been uh, funded as a part of uh, the recent announcement um, is additional money for an organization called the Society for Children and Youth of BC. Hmm. And that organization uh, runs a, a legal clinic. Uh, it's physically located in Vancouver, but uh, the doors aren't open as a function of COVID. Uh, and so communication with them can be online, by telephone, all the different ways we've sort of grown accustomed to dealing with things like that over the past couple of years. And the core of what that um, uh, Society for Children and Youth Clinic provides is legal advice and representation to children and youth uh, who are involved with uh, family law disputes, uh, or child protection disputes. And the idea there is that particularly older children uh, may have a pretty profound interest in terms of what happens to them, right? If the parents are separating or if the ministry is looking to apprehend them or yeah. somebody's trying to get access to them, the child may have an interest that's legitimate and should be taken into account by a judge when deciding what to do separate from what parents might want, for example, right? Parents might have some idea about what should happen uh, that may be different from what the, let's say, teenager thinks should happen to them, where they should live, or what should happen. And so this clinic will provide legal advice and representation for children and youth directly. The child or young person can call them, and a lawyer would be available to give them legal advice and potentially assist them with the case. Hmm. And so... I can, I'm going to provide the telephone number for that because, of course, if people don't have it, there's no way to access it. Yeah. It's a toll-free number. It's 1-877-462-0037. And that could be accessed, or somebody could Google it, right? If you Googled Society for Children and Youth at BC, right? Uh, and it would allow young people to call, talk to a lawyer, and potentially get representation to help them or legal advice. Um, on those sorts of matters, right? Family matters, divorce matters, where are they going to live? Um, you know, should they be apprehended and put in care? <laughs> where yeah. should that be? So that a judge would have the benefit of 
um, input uh, from the young person through counsel uh, when making decisions that involve them. Um, and so I think that's a very good initiative and people should be aware of it, either young people that might be listening or, um, you know, parents or grandparents or friends or others might be able to provide that information. If somebody, if you had a young person needed some help or advice, that's a place they'd be able to call. Um, other uh, initiatives include, um, and this may be a little bit into the weeds, but mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty important one. Yeah, It's for serious legal aid cases like murder cases or manslaughter cases. Um, it's a small amount of money to allow legal aid to assign a junior lawyer to participate in the defense. That's important for a number of reasons. First of all, those are complex cases with lots of work. Um, usually the Crown would have more than one lawyer working on them. And having a junior lawyer assigned to them also provides uh, an important way for young lawyers to get training and experience, right? Otherwise, how do you ever expect that's going to happen? So that's a good initiative. One of the concerns that remains, uh, and it uh, arises here in this announcement, however, is that at one point in British Columbia, the provision of legal aid was intended to be independent of government. And that's important because many of the legal aid cases involve the government on the other side. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, They're looking to apprehend a child or prosecute somebody criminally. And so you don't want the party who you're having a legal dispute with to be deciding how you're going to be defended, right? That's not great. And that changed a number of years ago and not for the better. Of course, everyone likes to have control over everything, right? And the government uh, has now exercised control over the provision of legal aid right down to the minutia of what exactly is going to be covered, when can you get help, when can't you. And one of the ways that's manifested itself um, is that we've talked about the fact that the eligibility for legal aid is very low. Like to get legal aid help at all, if you're a single person, you would need to make less than $1,670 per month. Wow. And what that means is that if you have a full-time minimum wage job, you're too rich to get any help from legal aid, which is a travesty because that person has no hope uh, after paying rent and buying food <laughs> to be able to hire a lawyer to help them. Um, and so that's a very serious and ongoing problem, right? We've indexed other things to inflation. That figure's not. One of the things, though, that's happened um, is that they've introduced this idea of um, – representation for people for early resolution in criminal cases where the person can make $1,000 more than that, right? $2,670, just over the threshold of the person with the minimum wage job. So a lawyer could be paid a small amount to assist the person in pleading guilty. Now, you have to think about that. Early resolution, of course, who likes who wouldn't like things to happen early? Yeah. Uh, and generally assisting more people who are unable to afford counsel would be a good thing. But you have to think carefully about that, because what the government has chosen to do is to say, if you are impoverished and you will plead guilty, we will pay a small amount for a lawyer to help you. Yeah, the incentive. If you wish to plead not guilty, we will not help you. Uh, And so you can certainly see how, from the government's perspective, incentivizing poor people to plead guilty early yeah. uh, might be very attractive. It might make things move quickly in the justice system, it might help prosecutions move along, save money on judges and courts. But is that appropriate? 
And is it appropriate uh, that you help somebody only if they'll plead guilty when that decision is being made by the person who's trying to prosecute you? And you have to ask yourself other questions like, well, what kind of leverage is the lawyer going to have when they're there representing somebody on the basis that they can only be paid if they're pleading guilty, not if they're pleading not guilty and having a trial? Um, and then because of the broad other broad funding problems, the amount they would pay the lawyer is something like $450 for all of the work involved in the case, start to finish, where the person winds up pleading guilty. And so you have a system which is inadequately funded, meaning people can't get counsel, and then you have the government now directly dictating what legal aid is going to be funding. And you will see in initiatives like that uh, circumstances where they may be uh, funding it in a way, using their funding and power to direct how legal aid is to be provided to perhaps not appropriately influence what people are doing. It doesn't seem, to my mind, fair or reasonable that you would tell somebody who cannot afford to hire a lawyer on their own, we will only help you, and only very modestly, but only if you're pleading guilty. If you wish to have a trial or plead not guilty, you're on your own. And you're on your own in a way for a person who's making minimum wage has no hope of getting any help on their own. Uh, and so it seems to me, while the changes announced are good things, every little bit of money is better than not. Um, and so the government's to be commended for that. Yeah. Ultimately, what needs to happen is the government needs to stop diverting money collected pursuant to this special tax and... They need to restore the independence of the provision of legal aid, right? It used to be that the board of directors was appointed in majority by the Law Society and the Canadian Bar Association. Now, with the government entering into these direct memorandums of understanding, and telling them what they're going to be providing, um, and of course you can see why, if you want to be able to take credit for new initiatives, right? The kind we just talked about, right? Like the one for the you know, Society for Children and Youth. The government can send out a press release. That's wonderful. Yeah. But it has the very undesirable impact of, uh, in some cases, like funding only guilty pleas and not trials for people who are impoverished, yeah. potentially inappropriately interfering uh, with the kind of independent uh, advice and assistance that people need. So we need to increase funding, restore funding, uh, stop taking money away that was supposed to go there, uh, and restore independence so that you can have a person can have confidence uh, that they're getting legal representation intended for them and all of their interests, not uh, guided by things like a desire to speed up the process and have people plead guilty early, which may be a government interest, but may very well not be in the interest of the uh, person getting help. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues right after this. All right, we're back on Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next on the agenda, Michael, the basis of an appeal and how it intersects with the prospect of deportation. A complicated case here. Indeed. Uh, the case began with uh, the underlying allegation uh, was cheating at Baccarat at a casino. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so this uh, fellow... Uh, uh, eventually pled guilty to fraud uh, over $5,000 because he was caught on camera uh, cheating the Hard Rock Casino playing Baccarat. Uh, sadly, the case doesn't describe uh, what exactly he was doing to cheat at Baccarat, apparently on 52 occasions, but wow. <laughs> apparently there was some, uh, some method by which he did that. 
the the uh, problem uh, arose because this man, who was 42 years old, married with three children, and who had no other criminal record, um, had come to Canada applying uh, as a refugee in 2009 and was denied. Uh, and so he had simply lived in Canada since then without any legal status at all. Hmm. Um, his wife was a permanent resident. His three children were Canadian citizens. He worked here. He hadn't had any other difficulty. Uh, but the way the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act works, uh, maybe a bit of a misleading title, given what I'm about to tell you, um, is that if you're convicted of an offense for which you could be um, sentenced to 10 years in jail or more, even if you are not, and this man was not, he was sentenced to 90 days in jail for his background misbehavior, um, you become inadmissible uh, to Canada on, on the basis of serious criminality. Hmm. Uh, and so, and there's no appeal from that, right? The government just tells you you're gone and that's it. You can't appeal it, ask for leniency or do anything else. You're just off you go. And so uh, this man realized that he was going to be gone, leaving his uh, children and wife behind. Uh, and so he attempted to appeal uh, the guilty plea uh, conviction, um, uh, arguing that uh, the plea was uninformed because he didn't know about uh, those immigration consequences. And indeed, there have been cases where that's genuinely been this, been so, where like defense counsel wasn't alive to it, Crown didn't pick up on the issue, judge didn't know about it, and somebody who's not a Canadian citizen, like they could be a permanent resident, right, even, um, just becomes ineligible to remain in Canada and they can be just deported. And it can occur for relatively common offenses, like, for example, impaired driving is punishable by a theoretical maximum of 10 years in prison. And so if somebody is convicted of impaired driving and they're a permanent resident, you may be just deported with no right of appeal. And there have been cases where people have just been totally unaware of that. The lawyer hasn't known about it or alerted them. Judge hasn't picked up on it. No one has. Uh, and just unbeknownst to them after you know, you might have lived in Canada since you were a child, uh, you're just deported. And so I guess I would say one piece of advice for anyone who's a permanent resident and eligible to apply for Canadian citizenship, get it done, uh, because you may find yourself uh, on the unappealable end of being deported if you were ever convicted of a multitude of offenses, including um, things like impaired driving, some forms of assault, other things for which you might not assume, maybe cheating at Baccarat, uh, you would be supported. I'm sorry, it just sounds so obscure. Like, I know, like, we can't allow cheating. I understand that. It just sounds like such an obscure thing to happen. Sure. And no doubt it's serious. We yeah. don't want the Hard Rock Casino to be out money. That's no. obviously serious. But you probably you wouldn't say the penalty for cheating at Baccarat ought to be deportation. No. Uh, that might be a little much. So... People need to be aware of that. It's really important and can easily be missed if somebody or their lawyer doesn't know about their immigration status. Nobody might tell them. And there have been cases like that where appeals have been allowed on the basis of, hey, just no one knew about these consequences. Nobody took them into account. You wouldn't have pled guilty had this been told to you. Yeah. But for this man's case, um, he hadn't appealed. There's an appeal period. If you want to appeal a conviction, you've got 30 days to do it. If you don't do it within 30 days, you need to ask for extra time, an extension of time to appeal. And when you're doing that, there are things that a judge needs to take into account, like 
things like, did you have an intention to appeal and just didn't get it done on time? Or would the other side be the Crown be prejudiced by giving you extra time? Or, and one of the factors, is there any merit in the appeal? And here, on the facts of this case, I just mentioned, um, the judge concluded there was no merit and the appeal was just bound to fail because the man's lawyer had spoken to him about the immigration consequences. He had gotten advice from an immigration consultant, including in writing. Um, just he was told, right, there's a very high probability that you may be deported with no appeal mechanism. And even if there might be some legal room about what was the wording or did you understand what, you know, ineligible meant or no right of appeal meant or something, ultimately the judge concluded this man was aware of it. His lawyer told him about it. He got other advice about it. Uh, and so his appeal had no hope of success. And so despite the fact that he's now discovered that indeed he's going to be sent um, out of the country, leaving behind his children and wife, um, unless they wish to follow, um, that's the end of it for him, and he will not be permitted additional time to file his appeal. He was trying to do it after about six months when he realized he was about to be um, shipped away. Uh, and so the cautionary tale there is be aware of that. If you are somebody who is a, a permanent resident in Canada and you're eligible to apply for citizenship, do so. Uh, because of the way that act works, um, there are various uh, offenses for which you could find yourself, no matter how long you've been here or how meritorious your case is or who you'd be leaving behind. Uh, you may be um, exited on the basis of serious criminality. So just be very careful if you're in that, if that is your status. And if you have a way to uh, improve that status, I would urge people to take it um, so that you don't uh, find out how potentially precarious uh, your status was. All right. We've got four and a half minutes left. The next case is interesting. The style of cause caught my eye. And I have to admit, I read it more than once to make sure I hadn't uh, misread it. Um, set this one up for us. Yeah. So this is a man. This is out of Nova Scotia. And it's a, a man, but last name of Grabber. G-R-A-B-H-E-R. Ah. Uh, Mr. Grabber um, had a personalized license plate with his last name on it. He had it for some 27 years. He was proud of his, uh, he was an immigrant to Canada. He was proud of his last name and his heritage. Uh, and so he had grabbed her on his license plate for 27 years. Hmm. After 27 years of driving around in Nova Scotia with this license plate, uh, the motor vehicle branch there uh, determined uh, that uh, his license plate could be promoting sexualized violence <laughs> on yes. the basis that it read, grab her. Yes. Uh, and so denied his uh uh, application to renew the license plate. Um, well, he challenged that, uh, arguing freedom of expression under the Charter. Um, and there is a surprisingly rich body of law surrounding that issue, right? Sometimes I think people mistakenly think, well, it says freedom of expression. That means freedom. I can do anything, right? I'm expressing myself. Look at me go. Um, but that's not the case. <laughs> I like the look at me go. That really sort of paints the picture. <laughs> I can get my flags and horn going. <laughs> Off I go. Uh, but it's more restrictive than that. Uh, and it's particular. there are some particularly naughty legal problems where the place or way in which you're trying to express yourself is government property. Yeah. Right? Like the license plate. Yes. Right? This isn't like you've made a sign. You want the government license plate to say it. Nobody's stopping Mr. Grabber from putting a big bumper sticker on the back of his car. He's knocked himself out. 
but it becomes an issue when it's that. And there's a leading case on that issue, which went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada from British Columbia. And the issue there involved political advertising on the side of a bus. Hmm. Um, and there was a desire by the uh, person in that case, it was the student society, to put a political ad on the side of a bus in Vancouver. And they were told no uh, on the basis that they had a policy of no political advertising on buses. I guess some desire not to have a public thing look like it was promoting a, a political party or political ideology or something. Yeah. And that was challenged uh, and went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Transit Authority lost. Um, and so there is a body of law surrounding how to approach claims of freedom of expression with respect to something which is government property, effectively, a bus or a license plate or something. Uh, but it involves a, a nuanced analysis of sort of like the public nature of it um, and the place. And so the Court of Appeal, this case in Nova Scotia, found that you did not have any freedom of expression with respect to a government license plate. It wasn't a matter of balancing it. It's just that's not a place in which you've got the right to engage in freedom of expression, right? It's not some limitless uh, authority to do anything you like and express yourself anywhere you want. Um, And when you're trying to do it in that context, Section 2B just doesn't apply at all. It's not a matter of balancing. It's just you don't have the constitutional right to have your license plate say anything you want. Um, And so uh, it's also an example of a case where just being bound and determined isn't going to get you off to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so while that was an interesting little legal issue, um, Mr. Grabber uh, applied for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And you can't just go to the Supreme Court because you really want to or are bound and determined. And so the Supreme Court of Canada denied him leave and said, no, that's it. You've had your case heard and you've had your case heard in the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. Uh, And uh, so Mr. Grabber will need to put up with a uh, different license plate or maybe get himself a bumper sticker. So he doesn't doesn't apply to that. That sounds like something in a comedy and I can just picture it. You know, if I was writing it as satire, I'd say Mr. Grabber. and They go, no, 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 you pronounced that wrong. They go, oh, okay, no, it's grab her and sort of yeah. leaning into the H as the correction yeah. every time. But I could just, yeah, what a nightmare. Um, maybe he needs to remove the H, just misspell his last name. Maybe Grabber will be better without the H. I just, yeah, all right. Well, there we go. Uh, truth stranger than fiction, as it often is. Michael Mulligan, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day.